Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version in your pew Bibles, which is the Old Standard Version. (laughs) That is page 1020 if you'd like to follow along. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual fortress of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. Bless the reading of God's word. So we have been uh, talking through Ephesians for the last seven weeks. doesn't seem like seven weeks, but uh, we have been covering the highlights. But I would recommend, let me just say this, I would recommend to go back now and just reread the whole letter. It was a letter written from beginning to end, just like other letters are written, and it was meant to be read completely together. Uh, we do this weird thing in Christianity. We kind of pull these these little sections out and just kind of focus in on them, which is fine. Because, uh, but uh, Paul would just rather we read his stuff and then go home, right? And <laughs> but uh, I'd be out of a job at that point, so we're going to do that. But I would recommend going back and taking a look. But here we come to the uh, the final section of Ephesians. 6, 10 through 20, the armor of God, a really great kind of militant uh, uh, feeling text. Uh, you know, it, it feels a little, I get uncomfortable with those things. And, uh, you know, Dennis finally got a stand up for, for Jesus on the docket because it's kind of, it kind of has that militant feel to it, which makes me a little uncomfortable. But we figured we could put them all in one Sunday and take care of it there. But here, Paul indeed sees this struggle in his churches in Ephesus and around Ephesus. He sees this as a very deep struggle, a war even. And so his militant tones probably seem appropriate to him. We don't live in the same time or under the same circumstances. But in Paul's day, there were several major struggles that he was engaged in. Uh, First of all, he had this struggle with the Roman world that saw Christianity as a political threat. Oh, these guys are talking treason. They're subversive. We need to 
we need to curtail that. And ultimately that got Paul in trouble as well. And he was killed in about 64 A.D. Then there was this struggle with the Jewish world that all Christians of this time kind of grew up in. Christianity was seen as a religious threat and actually just more obnoxious than anything. They got kicked out of the synagogues because they wouldn't shut up. And uh, so, you know, Christianity was kind of that uh, a pain in the butt and a bit obnoxious. And so there was that tension. But eventually it became honest to goodness, parting of the ways and hostility. And then there was even a struggle just within the Christian faith, this, this brand new thing that popped up uh, ba- you know, based on the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And almost immediately, these good, they must have, see, this is why I know Baptist goes right back to the beginning, is because uh, right at the beginning, they started fighting amongst themselves and ultimately splitting apart and going their separate ways. So Paul had this struggle within the Christian community. What does it mean to be Christian? Do I have to be Jewish in order to be Christian? Do I, do I, or can I abandon a lot of those ideas and things like that? Do I have to be circumcised? Do I have to follow the food laws? All these struggles were going on. And Paul often saw those in black and white terms and saw that as a war that needed to be waged. It's no wonder he understood these obstacles to the ministry of peace and gospel of grace as the work of cosmic powers of this present darkness, he calls it, and, a, and spiritual forces of evil. He didn't mince many words. Life was complicated then. Life is complicated now. And while we are not under persecution, I know that there's, sometimes there's a myth out there that Christians are under persecution in this in this country, but it is not true. I'm sorry. When we sit in this gorgeous building in the light of day and I get to, you know, uh, I get to say whatever I want from up here, uh, you know, within reason, (laughs) then, you know, we are not under, under persecution. However, I think we do feel what it's like to have, to be attacked. Amen. We, we, and not only that, but we know what it is to have our faith under attack. Amen? Right? When you're told that because you're a woman, you can't stand in this pulpit, your faith is being attacked. Right? When you are told that you have to choose between your faith in God and whether or not you're going to be gay or not, your faith is under attack. Amen? When you stand up for an organization that promotes women's health because all the other medical industry is concerned about Viagra and you're told you're not a Christian, your faith is being attacked. When you're told how to walk, talk, look, act, speak, your faith is being attacked. When you are told you have to be in this box to be a real Christian, your faith is being attacked. Am I right? Amen. Yeah, you can say amen. That's all right. I, I prefer it when you do. You, I, there's not any of us who probably, growing up in Utah in particular, kind of feel like there are times when our legitimate faith is being seen as illegitimate. When our sincere desire to be followers of Christ is mocked and dismissed. When our faith is being attacked. And when our faith is attacked, we can't help but feel like our very persons are being attacked. 
Amen? Because if you're like me, my faith is who I am. You cannot separate me from the faith I have in God and what God is in my life. Amen? So this is where Paul comes in. He's coming at this saying, when your faith is attacked. And, and Paul knows what that's like. Is when your faith is attacked, here are, what, here are the things you need to defend yourself. And he goes through this struggle. And there are struggles that Paul tries to deal with. And so we look at this text today, and he suggests as a defense against these powers that conspire to shake our faith and our convictions, that there are some things that we should hang on to. And he uses these churchy words, these things that have become almost meaningless in the church because we use them so often, we just kind of throw them out there. Words like truth and righteousness, peace and faith and salvation and spirit. These are all kind of churchy words. they got a lot of baggage attached to them, I think. Uh, and so we're going to kind of talk about that. But Paul has some, some certain things in mind. And I joined Paul in looking at these ideals for strength to hold on to one's own faith and conviction, as well as to be the bearer of the gospel of peace to a skeptical and hostile world that we live in yet now. And yet they also come with a caution. For these same concepts have been at the heart of what ails the church today. If you want to know why people are leaving the church, it's because of words like truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation, and spirit, and the way they've been used. Exclusive claims on truth and righteousness, speaking of peace only as in the abstract, prescribed formulaic approaches to faith and salvation, and a narrow view of what the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are about, all have contributed to the empty pews, although we don't suffer that today, amen? <laughs> but the empty pews have fallen because of that. These have not made us strong in the Lord, but have weakened us. This has not been our armor, but has exposed us to every possible evil. Yet when we ground these core ideals in Scripture, in our tradition, that is our community, the things we have, we have known, the things that have been passed on to us, our, our church, our traditions, our community, and in our own experiences with God, I don't think we hear that enough, that our own experiences with God are valid and count. And when we, when we see these words and we hear these words from Paul through the lens of Scripture, tradition, and our own experiences, they become indeed for us the full armor designed to protect our conviction and our faith and strengthen us in the struggles that we encounter. So let's explore these churchy concepts and wrestle together with their full meaning and the implication for the church and people of faith today. Paul tells us to strap on the belt of truth. Now truth is one of those things that gets tossed about. It's a difficult concept. And I'm sure we can all understand something like uh, the idea that something can be true without being factual. See, for about the last 250, 300 years, all of a sudden, truth and fact have become synonymous. And actually, that's a rather modern concept. 
that came to us through the Enlightenment. Science began to look for facts that could be shown through evidence. And soon we culturally began to expect that for something to be true, it must be factual and provable. And all of this gives rise to the literalist reading of the Bible. In fact, we cannot help, and I, I, I mean this, we cannot help but look at scriptures through a modern lens. It's in our DNA. We've been, in, in, you know, for 300 years, this has just been the way we see the world. We can't help it. It's just part of our, our DNA. So we really have to train ourselves to look at scripture differently than through this kind of literalist lens. Because it wasn't, it was written before the scientific method. Amen. And so, you know, this is a 3,000, 2,000 year old document. And to expect that we can look at it through our modern lens and really understand it is a bit silly. We need to approach it uh, with that understanding, recognizing our own modern lens. Yet a metaphorical view of Scripture has as much, if not more, grounding in tradition and is just as true even if not factual. Uh, uh, my good mentor Marcus Borg calls this a more than literal approach to the Bible. And if we take a metaphorical view of the Bible, the factuality of an event has little to do with its actual meaning. In other words, this is really what I'm getting at. Jesus, there's a story about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Unless you're in Mark, then he feeds 5,000, then 4,000. So there's two different stories. Uh, anyway, the different Gospels have different stories about Jesus feeding people uh, miraculously with a miraculous uh, two loaves and five fish. Uh, believe whatever you like about it. Believe it actually happened that way or believe that it's a, this is a meta, an allegory or a story meant to say something. Believe what you like. It doesn't matter. Let's talk about what it means. Because what it means and the truth of that scripture, the truth of that text, has nothing to do with whether that actually happened or not. Because the truth of that text is the Lord will provide and there is enough for everybody. Amen? I don't even need to preach that text. We can we understand that this is a metaphor about the abundance of God, of the kingdom of God, and that there is enough for all of us. Amen? That's what the story means. And even the literalist Christian knowingly uses metaphorical language. We all have heard someone say, I walk with Jesus every day. Well, if I were to take a picture, I would only see one person. <laughs> right? But we know what they mean. We know what that means, right? So my point is this. Truth can be our most powerful and comforting concept in times of doubt and struggle, but only if that truth finds its grounding in a more than literal reading of Bible and tradition. We need to, we need to go past, you know, the Discovery Channel is curious about whether or not Noah's Ark could have really happened or, or whether, uh, you know, the Red Sea actually parted. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. What I care about is what is the person who wrote that trying to tell us about God? Amen. I encourage you to ask that question. What is the writer trying to tell us about God? And what is the truth found in here that is not dependent on whether or not it actually happened? 
Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Ooh, that's one of those, that's one of those words we kind of cringe at, righteousness. Righteousness, actually, it literally means to be in right relationship. Right? A right relationship with God. And that's one where we have this deliberate and intentional relationship with God going on, where, where God is allowed to know us deeply and we're curious about God in our lives. And we have that, we nurture and cultivate that relationship. You know, I think we think that being right with God is about being perfect, uh, you know, repenting of our sins and, and getting, you know, taking a good long bath and then going and seeing God, that is not what God wants at all. God wants us to come with our dirtiness and our ugliness and our warts and all. God will do the cleaning. You don't need to worry about that. God's there to help us figure it all out. And we, try, we got the notion that in order to be right with God, we've got to go take care of business and then come before God all cleaned up and ready to go. Boy, that is not right. God is longing. To be the one who walks with you on that journey of self-exploration and becoming right. Being right with God has to do with the intention and the desire to just be in relationship with God and interacting with the holy. Amen? Amen. Thank you. There's a righteousness. There is a right relationship that we have with others. Equity, justice, compassion. Those are really churchy words. Equity, justice, compassion, grace, healthy boundaries. I don't know where that is in the Bible, but I, I would, if I were writing, I would put it in there. Healthy boundaries. These, these two are summed up with this. Love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There you go. There you go. There's also a right relationship with our possessions and the world we live in around us. It has to be said that it is different to claim right relationship with possessions. It is difficult to claim right relationship with our possessions and with the world when exploitation and oppression is so rampant and we can so easily isolate ourselves from it. So often we can just turn the channel if we see reality coming in, and I don't mean reality television, I mean, you know, hurt and pain and suffering. And we can easily hide ourselves away from the disparity of the haves and the have not. And depending on how that gets spun, we can even imagine that that's the way God wants it. Oh, it's hard to be in right relationship with our world and with our possessions in a world like that. But if you found out that the toothpaste factory that you worked for manufactured their toothpaste in India using Fijian slaves that had been captured and forced to produce toothpaste, would you not, as a Christian, have an obligation to get out of that line of work or to call the company to task or expose the realities of slavery? Would we not have an obligation? This is one of those rare black and white things. I'm sorry, but if the job you're in promotes slavery, you need to get out of that job. Now I'm preaching. Would not all of us who came to know about all of that need to stop using this toothpaste in order to claim righteousness, in order to claim right relationship with our possessions and the world we live in? 
Are we not called to live out justice? To live out the kingdom of God? I believe these are the everyday dilemmas that we face as followers of Christ. And as we allow the desire for right relationship to guide our decision making, it becomes a shield for us against so much evil in the world. Being shielded by all of that. Now, Paul goes on to say, put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. Now, I like this part. I'm, I don't know if you know this, but I, I like to shop. And shoes, man, I love having... Uh, I, nice shoes are important, I think. Uh, however, there's a difference between the kind of shoes I like and the kind of shoes Paul is talking about. I like this one because it, this suggests a movement in the world. So I, I think Paul probably has practical shoes in mind. I rarely wear practical shoes. Uh, you know, practical shoes imply exercise, which uh, another thing I kind of eschew. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I like, I like nice shoes. Look at that. <laughs> Those are nice shoes. Paul's talking about a different kind of shoe, a very practical kind of shoe. A shoe that carries us forward. That uh, Paul said, you know, and you need good shoes because you're going to be moving. You're going to be taking this gospel of peace out into the world. This word, uh, this word peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom. And it's a lot like being in right relationship. It's a lot like righteousness. Shalom is about a relationship that we have in the world. It is that, that place of peace where there is, there is a good and constructive and equitable relationship between people. That's the kind of peace that Paul is talking about. And we're wearing the shoes of peace because it is our job to carry that with us and to spread it around a little bit. So you need good shoes that are going to get you around for all of that. Comfortable shoes. <laughs> Paul says, "Put on, carry the shield of faith. Hebrews says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. What gives us this kind of confidence, this kind of conviction to say, I am sure of these hopes that I have. And I'm convinced, even though I have not seen, I am convinced of them. Ever more increasingly in this world, we are told that we're stupid for having faith. And I understand where that comes from. I mean, you know, Bill Maher picks out the worst examples of Christianity to make fun of and poke fun of. The worst examples. The most ridiculous. The most fringe examples. And then he pokes fun at them and making making us look stupid. Telling us we're stupid. So we really need to understand where does this faith come from? This, This faith that hopes... This faith that is certain, even though it does not see. What gives us this? I'll tell you what, this is where personal, spiritual experience really comes into play. You know why I pray? Not out of fear, not because, I, not because God's some kind of genie that makes everything happen, not out of obligation. I pray because it works. <laughs> Amen. I pray because after I'm done praying, I feel better. I'm praying because after I'm done praying, things start to happen in my life. 
I'm, I pray because I find my peace, I find my grounding, I find my conviction, I find my ability to hope and to hang on, I find it grounded in my prayer. So maybe I'm stupid, but it works. Right? My former wife, Robin, got off a of wheat. Now, she was never diagnosed with celiacs, but she got off a of wheat, and to this day she's off a of wheat, not because the doctor, because she feels better when she doesn't eat wheat. <laughs> Call it whatever you like, she feels better. I pray because I feel better. The helmet of salvation, that's one of those big churchy words, salvation. And it, and it literally means to be saved. So often this is reduced to a formula. Say this. Pray that, and bada bing, bada boom, you're saved. As though it were, you know, a religious ceremony like circumcision. <laughs> In truth, the notion of salvation is an ongoing journey of growing in to our higher selves, of becoming the woman or man of God we were created to be. It is our state of of becoming I am it's not that I'm saved it's that I am being saved amen amen and there's a reason we it's a helmet right because we want to use our brains and use our intellect as we seek this salvation for ourselves we can look back and see that our relationship with Jesus saved us in the past maybe from going down a dangerous and unhealthy path in our lives. We can experience being saved right now from the struggles, the temptations, and the frustrations of our life in our everyday lives, maybe through prayer, as I would suggest. We can knowingly count on the God of salvation to continue to point us towards wholeness and life in the future. Jesus saved, Jesus saves, and Jesus will save. Amen? Amen? That was... Man, you lost some oomph there for a minute. Finally, we are given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Paul says. The sword... This is the only one that is not only a defensive weapon, but a, an, an offensive weapon as, as well. With it, we defend ourselves against the lies and the deceit, against the corruption and the temptation, against the powers and principalities in this present darkness. But we also attack. We attack injustice with justice. We attack hate with love. We attack ignorance with truth. We attack oppression with freedom. Oh, we're not, we're pacifists, but we're not passive. Amen? We attack with that Holy Spirit. In fencing, we're taught to treat our foil as an extension of our arm. It becomes part of us. In the same way, the Holy Spirit becomes a part of ourselves. It gives us the spiritual discernment that allows us to navigate this troubled world that we live in. So Paul encourages us to put on the full armor of God as we struggle every day with what it means to be 
followers of Jesus Christ. We live in a weird time. We live in a time when at once we can feel under attack and then we turn around and we have to turn to our Christian brothers and sisters and we feel attacked by them. So we got the world coming in on this side and we got our brothers and sisters coming in on this side. We need an armor, amen? We need this armor. And, and it's good advice coming to us from Paul. And I fear that it's, it's lost its meaning with all the churchiness, but I encourage us all to seek the deeper meaning of these and to strap on these important armors that we might, most importantly, what I really want for you, for myself, and for everyone who enters into this sanctuary, and maybe even some people outside the sanctuary, what I want more than anything is for you to be able to hang on to your faith. Hang on to your faith. The world is going to tell you either it's stupid or that you don't get to have it for whatever reason. Paul is giving you the equipment you need to hang on to your faith. Because that faith is what is going to help us transform this world, transform ourselves, and become all that God has empowered us to be. Amen? Let us pray. Loving and gracious God, we... We gladly, eagerly accept the armor that You have described through Paul. We ask that You help us with a deeper understanding of what those churchy words are for us and how it can help us hang on to all that You have given us. May we gird ourselves for the conflict and the struggle that is life as a person of faith. We ask this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.